Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Okay, and uh, welcome back to Behind the Knife. We're really excited to share with you guys today uh, our new release. We finally have our Behind the Knife Absite Companion paperback and ebook now available, the second edition with illustrations. We've put a lot of work into this and made a lot of updates since last year's ebook, and uh, we're really excited to release this. I was just going to have Jason uh, talk to us a little bit about how he put this together and sort of what the content entails. So that's right, guys. You guys asked and we delivered. So um, the uh, ebook we released last year was uh, did incredibly well, and we appreciate all your support for that. But what people kept coming to us again and again saying, where's the print version? Where's the print version? Well, we're excited to say now we have a print version. So again, this Abside Companion, this is the culmination of all of our notes that we've taken over the years. We know how to do well on this test. We've all done well on this test. We know what it takes. So we're sharing with you guys our notes. In addition, we have gone through and updated everything with the latest clinical guidelines. So, you know, what this book is, we're going to provide you with the latest clinical practice guidelines that's going to help you answer correctly on the test what the next step is. In addition, this will help you do well on the app site. This will help with your general surgery qualifying exam and certifying exam. It'll also help, prepare, help you prepare for clerkships, rotations, and daily rounds. So, We've gone through, we've updated everything. There's illustrations. And, and Megan, why don't you tell us a little bit about that, the illustrations and, and the new uh, uh, charts that are in this book. Yeah, I think you guys are really going to like the new illustrations that we have. They were done by Irene Yu, who is a resident at the University of Buffalo. Um, it's a funny story. I saw a really cool image on Twitter. I sent it to Kevin, and he thought it was cool, too. And then the next day, I got a text message from my uh, medical school classmate saying that's his fiance. So we got connected, and we were able to get her on board to make these illustrations for you. There's about 26 colored illustrations, as well as... Um, 15 tables, some of which are illustrated tables. So it's really cool. John, can you tell us a little bit more about what we're doing with the book? Yeah, so some of you probably have already noticed if you looked on Amazon that the pricing of the book this year is uh, much higher than last year, both of the paperback and the electronic version ebook. Um, the reason for that is that we spent a lot of money trying to get this uh, book up to date with the illustrations. We got uh, professional pub publishers involved to really make the formatting nice for the paperback. Um, we don't make uh, money off this podcast. All the money that we spend or make from these book sales or uh, whatever else we're doing goes right back into the podcast to continue to bring you uh, better and new content as the year goes on. Probably most importantly, Kevin, why don't you tell people where they can get the book, where they can find it? Yeah, so it's all on Amazon. We use the the Kindle direct publishing platform to get this out for the lowest price possible and the quickest possible way to you guys. So please go to Amazon, search behind the knife, absite review, uh, 
please uh, buy the book to support Behind the Knife. It's going to help us make better videos, better podcasts, better uh, curriculums in the future for you guys. And also give us a rating. Give us a five-star review. It really helps uh, put the book uh, on top and knock out some of the, the old dogs uh, and, and help uh, make Behind the Knife a, a better book. Um, so go to Amazon.com and find Behind the Knife. And probably most importantly, dominate the day. All right, we're going to jump right into it, getting started with the head and neck abside review. Uh, so first and foremost, let's go over some of the high yield anatomy that shows up pretty frequently on the test. Uh, so Kevin, uh, anterior, this question is asked almost every year. So you have your subclavian vein, your subclavian artery, your you know phrenic nerve, your scalenes, and it always asks you to you put these in order from either anterior to posterior to posterior to anterior. So anterior to posterior, what order do these structures come in? Yes, I, I would recommend Googling uh, this, these structures and just you know making a mental picture of this. But you start with the subclavian vein. I always remember that because that's when you're putting your central line in. That's the most anterior. Um, and so you go right under the clavicle and you have the subclavian vein. Uh, behind the subclavian vein, you have the phrenic nerve. Um, and then you run into your first muscle, the anterior scalene. Uh, and then after that, you have your subclavian artery. And then it is bordered by the, um, bounded by the middle scalene after that. Yep. So vein first, then your nerve, your nerve lies right on top of your anterior scalene, you have your subclavian artery, and then your middle scalene behind that. So woo, uh, talking more about anatomy in the head and the neck, the neck is broken up into some, some different triangles. What's that all about? Yeah, Jason. So there's the anterior triangle and the posterior triangle. So starting with the anterior triangle, uh, looking at the anterior boundary, you have the midline of the neck that uh, runs into the posterior boundary, which is the sternocleidomastoid. And the inferior or the apex is the sternal notch. And the superior or the base is the lower border of the body of the mandible. Uh, this contains the carotid sheath. So again, the main reason uh, or the key important point about the anterior neck triangle is that it contains the carotid sheath. And, and this is important for surgical uh, incision making and, and accessing. And so the sternocleidomastoid for both the anterior and posterior uh, part of the neck is really uh, what the landmarks are based on. And so the anterior triangle is anterior to the sternocleidomastoid, and that's where you find your carotid sheath. So then for the posterior neck triangle, again, that sternocleidomastoid forms the anterior boundary. The posterior boundary is formed by the trapezius muscle. The base is the middle third of the clavicle. And the apex is the intersection of the sternocleidomastoid and the trapezius. The key clinical point here is that it contains the spinal accessory nerve. Great. So another thing that's, that's commonly you know tested for head and neck anatomy is, is that darn recurrent laryngeal nerve. So Kevin, you know they ask a lot of questions about the recurrent laryngeal nerve. First off, what is it and what does it do? Yeah. So uh, this is a it's a branch off the vagus, but it takes a uh, different course than most nerves. It doesn't come straight off the vagus like you would expect it to as it passes the vocal cords. It actually goes more uh, caudad into the chest and then wraps around either the subclavian artery or the uh, aortic arch and comes back up and innervates the uh, larynx. And so the recurrent laryngeal innervates all the muscles of the larynx except for the cricothyroid muscle. And so what, what then innervates the cricothyroid muscle? Because I'll ask you that too. Yeah, that is the superior laryngeal nerve. Right. So super, superior laryngeal nerve uh, innervates your cricothyroid muscle. And what happens if you bag that? You have difficulties with tone um, and hitting high notes. 
And so it depends on, you said something about coming down into the chest and wrapping around either the aortic arch or the subclavian artery. It differs based on the left or right side, right? Right. Yeah. Based on the anatomy of the aortic arch, uh, you have your uh, brachiocephalic trunk and, and right subclavian. So on the right side, the vagus passes anterior to the subclavian artery, and then the recurrent laryngeal loops behind the subclavian artery and travels up the tracheoesophageal groove. Whereas on the left side, the vagus passes anterior to the aortic arch um, between the left uh, common carotid artery and subclavian artery, and the recurrent laryngeal loops behind the aortic arch and travels superiorly in the tracheoesophageal groove. Okay, well, that's, that's about enough for head and neck anatomy. Let's move into some um, head and neck tumors, which I don't know. It was always it was always very confusing for me as a general surgeon uh, studying for these tests because it's not something we really dealt with uh, every day. Um, so we tried to break it down, just kind of you know the basics that you need to know for 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 the ab site for the boards. One thing uh, as far as head and neck cancer goes is this is probably worth I would estimate about three questions out of the two hundred fifty questions, and I'd say the anatomy is another question or. Two. So this is pretty low yield overall, but there's definitely questions on this every year. Yeah, that's why you get, it's that distinction, though, Kevin, as to why you got a 98th percentile and not a 99th percentile. Exactly. So let's let's start with uh, squamous cell cancer, the head and neck, as it is the most common. So, Wu, can you tell me just a little bit about squamous cell cancer of the neck? Uh, who does it affect? What are some risk factors? Yeah, so a little bit of epidemiology here. Uh, squamous cell cancer of the neck is the fifth most common cancer with men affected more than women by a ratio of five to one. Uh, so the risk factors are alcohol and tobacco, uh, and these both have a synergistic effect. So using one in and of itself is a risk factor, but you use both together, and that compounds your risk. Uh, additionally, HPV has been shown to be a risk factor as well. So when we think of squamous cell cancer, uh, you can break it up into local versus aggressive or distant met. So local disease you could think of as stage one or two, then you could think of stage three and four as either locally aggressive or having distant metastases. Yeah, you know, I really tried to focus on, uh, you know, there's there's some cancers that you absolutely need to know the staging for. There's others where you, a general idea is, is good. So I tried to break it down here into kind of what you need to know. So for squamous cell cancer, the head and neck, it's very, it's ch changing all the time. Each subsite, whether it's the oral cavity, oral pharynx, nasopharynx, um, have their own uh, staging system and treatment recommendations. But in general, if you think about head and neck, squamous cell cancer, stage one and two as being local disease, again, no regional, no positive nodes, no distal mets. Stage three and four, either um, uh, locally aggressive or having distant mets. So, Kevin, so just in general, when you think about breaking it down like that, what are some treatment options for squamous cell cancer of the head and neck? Yeah, so in general, uh, surgery or radiation, uh, generally they have tumor boards where they discuss kind of the, the modality based on the patient's age and the, the extent of their cancer um, in, based on the location and if it's resectable or not. Yeah, so that's for, uh, that's for stage one and two, so either um, surgery, primary surgery or radiation. And again, there's going to be a tumor board where they're going to discuss where it is, you know, whether it's resectable, whether it's non-resectable. Uh, so, for example, wide local excision for intraoral lesion versus radiation for a vocal cord lesion, where that would not be, um, uh, it would be very morbid to do a wide local excision on the vocal cords. So that's for stage one and two. What about for stage three or four? So once you're getting into uh, either locally aggressive or distant metastases, that's when you're thinking about multimodality therapy. So for stage three and four, you really need uh, generally both surgery, 
followed by radiation and or chemotherapy. Yep. So the more, you know, more locally advanced or distant METs needs multimodality. So that's going to be wide local excision with a modified radical neck dissection followed by either radiation or chemotherapy. So woo, uh, you know, a lot of times they'll give you an oral squamous cell cancer and they'll tell you how the size of it and they'll give you some options as far as surgery alone, surgery, radiation, radiation alone. What's kind of a good general rule of thumb as far as size cutoff for oral squamous cell cancers? Yeah, absolutely, Jason. So for oral squamous cell cancer, look for a size cutoff of four centimeters, so greater than four centimeters, or look for or mention of other concerning features like node involvement or bone invasion. And when you see these markers, then think you need resection with modified radical neck dissection followed by a post-op radiation. Right. So four centimeters is a good general rule. Or again, like you said, some of those worrisome things that would put you into a more locally advanced um, or, you know, distant met type situation um, where you need the, you need to add the modified radical neck dissection in addition to the primary section and then followed by a post-op uh, adjuvant therapy, um, most likely radiation. Okay, so uh, moving on to the next one, these would be your salivary gland tumors. Uh, so, Kevin, um, you know, you have which of these are the more, most malignant, which of these are the most uh, uh, benign? Yep, I still stick to the strategy of the small salivary gl- glands. If they have a tumor in them, it's more likely to be malignant. So if you have a submandibular gland with a tumor, more likely to be malignant versus a parotid, um, which is more likely to have benign tumors. Uh, so what's the most common tumor overall? Uh, the malignant, I'm sorry, the most so, common malignant tumor overall. Right. Uh, important distinction because benign tumors are more common overall. Um, but the most common malignant tumor is the mucoepidermoid cancer. And well, how about the most common uh, benign tumor? Is it pleomorphic adenoma? Yep, it's pleomorphic adenoma. So... Uh, going back to malignant, so what uh, for uh, mucoepidermoid cancer of salivary gland? What's your treatment? So you know, you want uh, to clear the cancer. So whatever it takes, you resection, total parotidectomy um, with facial nerve preservation if it is in the parotid, um, followed by a modified radical neck dissection on that side, and then consideration of post-op chemo. Or, I'm sorry, post-op radiation. Yeah. So this is another one. I mean, like, like Kevin said before, this can be three or four questions, but this is generally the way they go. They'll give you a head and neck tumor and they'll ask you what the treatment is. You have to know whether or not you just resect it. You have to know whether or not you add radiation. You have to know um, whether or not you do a modified radical neck dissection. So mucoepidermoid gets resection. Modified radical neck dissection and post-op XRT. And I think it's a pretty safe bet. If it's a malignant tumor in a head and neck scenario, you're going to add the modified radical neck dissection onto it. Unless it's a small stage one or stage two oral, you know, squamous cell, something like that. So not always, but, but I guess if you're, if you're shotgunning, uh, that, that's a good uh, approach. Um, how about adenoid cystic uh, cancer? That's the number two most common cancer of the salivary gland next to mucoepidermoid. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so these are a little more slow growing with a tendency for local invasion, uh, particularly into nerves. Um, so the treatment for this is, again, resection uh, with, you know, all attempts to spare the facial nerve if it is the parotid. And this will also uh, follow up with a modified radical and then consideration for radiation therapy. 
So what about um, if, you know, it's, it would be, you meet with your tumor board, it's adenoid cystic cancer, it's invading some very important structures, it would be a highly morbid resection, where is another option? Right, so if it, you know, is totally invading the facial uh, nerve or something of that nature, you, you could just consider radiation as it's pretty sensitive to radiation. Yep, so it's another one of those exceptions to the rule that, you, yeah, you resect it if you can, but this adenoid cystic, and I've, I've definitely seen this, it can be... Um, uh, very slow growing, um, but very responsive to uh, XRT. So you can get away with XRT. Primary radiation therapy for these uh, is an option. Uh, another very you know popular uh, question is that uh, somebody uh, somebody comes in with a lymph node um, or a palpable lymph node in the neck. Um, they biopsy it and it's malignant, um, but. You, for life of you, just can't find a primary tumor anywhere. What's your approach to these patients? Yeah, so these can actually offer quite a diagnostic dilemma, but if you can work through them systematically, uh, there is a good way uh, to make sure you don't miss anything here. So first, you want to start with a thorough head and neck exam, and this includes a fiber optic exam of the nasopharynx and larynx. Once you complete that, then you can move to FNA of regional nodes or an excisional biopsy of any nodes that are available to you. Uh, once you have that back, you can then move to a CT scan of the head, neck, and chest, and you can consider adding on a PET scan as well. Uh, after that, then you, you would take the patient to the operating room for a direct laryngoscopy, esophagoscopy, and ipsilateral tonsillectomy, plus biopsies directed by the previous workup. Uh, so the thing to note here is that the most common site of the unknown primary is typically the tonsil, followed by the second being the base of the tongue. And if no primary is identified, you'll still need to do an ipsilateral modified radical neck dissection and a bilateral uh, XRT. So this is a, a popular way of asking this is, is the, what's, the, what's the next step question? So you'll have a patient that presents to you with, with a mass, you'll biopsy it, it'll come back as you know, squamous cell cancer, they'll ask you what's the next step. So if you think about it in that stepwise approach, you know, you start with your thorough head and neck exam, you know, fiber optic exam. Um, then if you don't already have a biopsy of that, you're going to go for a biopsy for diagnostic confirmation, uh, which may be an FNA or excisional. Um, and then uh, this is usually the next step is a CT scan of the head and neck plus or minus the PET exam. Um, but it's important to know that if you still don't find anything, you're taking them to the OR regardless. Um, and again, that ipsilateral tonsillectomy uh, with directed biopsies is another very popular uh, question um, and a very popular answer. Um, so moving on, let's move on to uh, head and neck melanoma. So what's uh, with all melanoma, Kevin, what's a very important um, uh, principle with uh, diagnosis? Right. Yeah. They could ask you how to biopsy this. And of course, you never want to shave biopsy a melanoma. Um, you need to get the T stage. Um, and that is determined by a, generally by a punch biopsy or excisional biopsy, uh, one of the two. And so the head and neck melanoma, it's managed very similarly to truncal or extremity melanoma. Um, it's just that there's uh, it's less room for wide local excisions and things of that nature on the, the head and face. Um, so that, that does make it a little tricky. And also identifying the lymph node basins for which to do the lymphadenectomy also makes uh, head and neck melanoma a little more tricky. Uh, yeah. So like you said, you know, it's, it's similar to other parts of the body. We're, we're going to go over, you know, the, the specific staging and talk more in depth about melanoma in a different podcast. But 
specific to head and neck, uh, what are some um, principles as far as margins and some other surgical uh, um, surgical uh, principles when approaching the melanoma of the head and neck? Right. So if possible, you want to keep your same margins as you would anywhere else. Um, so one centimeter margin for lesions that are less than one millimeter in depth or two centimeters for um, any margins, uh, anything over one millimeter in depth. Uh, so the, the difference is, though, is that the margins can be adjusted if a budding critical structure, such as the facial nerve, which they uh, you should always preserve unless uh, clinically involved. Um, and then you always want to confirm negative margins prior to reconstruction. Um, and then so this is a good scenario where Mohs surgery can be really helpful in um, obtaining negative margins on melanoma. The, the other tricky part comes in with lymphadenectomy. You know, so if you have a melanoma on the side of the head or on the top of the scalp of, of, of which area you do the lymphadenectomy at. And so what you can do is you can actually get a lymphocentigraphy of these patients um, where they put a tracer dye around the melanoma and then they can determine where the regional nodes are that then you can proceed with you know the modified radical neck on that side or wherever the nodal basin ends up being. What's the role? Uh, what about the role of sentinel lymph nodes for a melanoma in the neck? If clinically node negative, uh, sentinel lymph nodes for greater than one millimeter in depth. Yeah. So again, that's similar as as in other parts of the body. Uh, now, woo, I know there's something, I remember there's being something about uh, uh, melanoma of the head and neck, and sometimes you have to do something with the parotid glands. Uh, what's that all about? Yeah. So generally, you want to imagine a line from one tragus to the other. Uh, and so if the primary lesion is anterior to this line, then uh, it will drain anteriorly to the parotid basin. So uh, superficial parotidectomy and selective anterior neck dissection is indicated for anterior lesions, again, anterior to this line. And selective posterior neck dissection is indicated for line, lesions that are posterior to this line. Yep. So that's highly testable. So just know, uh, you know, know the role of superficial uh, parodidectomy um, with melanoma of the head and neck. Okay. The role of adjuvant therapy for melanoma head and neck, Kevin? Uh, unfortunately, there's not a great therapy for this. Um, and that's why a good primary surgery is the uh, key component. But uh, adjuvant interferon alpha has been shown some survival benefits. Um, but it does have severe side effects, and many people aren't able to complete this therapy. Um, and then sometimes uh, salvage radiation therapy for regional control, but no survival benefit has been seen in these. And thankfully, there's some ongoing trials targeting uh, monoclonal antibodies and oncogene inhibitors uh, to help uh, treat this. Yeah, that's one. Of, that's one of those things where it's still, you know, it's there's still a lot of clinical trials going on, so it'd be hard for them to ask a question. They may ask you something about, you know, met metastatic disease or something, and interferon alpha would probably be the answer for that. They may, with somebody with, you know, grossly positive uh, regional lymph nodes, uh, ask you about uh, radiation therapy to the nodal, nodal bed. Um, and then there's some other experimental things, monoclonal antibodies, oncogene inhibitors, um, but it's unlikely that they'll, at this point, um, ask you anything about that. Uh, okay, so that covers our head and neck tumors. Now it's time for, we'll do some quick hits. So this is, you know, real quick question and answer. Not a lot of uh, extrapolation on these, um, but these are um, good, highly testable, quick points. So, Wu, um, painless mass on the roof of the mouth, uh, what is it? So it's an overgrowth of cortical bone. It's called torus palatinus. Uh, yeah, so this shows up pretty commonly because it looks scary. It's a it's a big protuberant mass on the the bony part of the roof of the mouth. Uh, what do you do for them? 
So typically nothing. Um, if you find that the patient uh, has uh, is describing that this interferes with the dentures fitting, then you might consider resecting. But overall, you don't need to yeah. do anything the, for it. The answer on the boards is going to be leave it alone. Don't do anything. Okay, Kevin, uh, what's the most common site for an oral cavity cancer? Uh, the lower lip. Why is that? Uh, sun exposure. Okay. And what do you? what's the kind of the general rule if it involves this much of the lip, you need reconstruction? Right. Uh, so if it's over half of the lip is resected, uh, you should consider flaps uh, for reconstruction. Okay. Some uh, Great. Some associations, Woo. So uh, Epstein-Barr virus, how does that relate to head and neck uh, tumors? So you want to think nasopharyngeal squamous cell cancer. Exactly. Epstein-Barr virus, nasopharyngeal squamous cell uh, cancer. And um, it's a squamous cell, but how do you treat that? With radiation. Right. Primary, primary radiation. They're very sensitive to external beam radiation. Uh, Kevin, we covered this a minute ago, but uh, repetition is the key to adult learning. So what's the most common malignant sal salivary gland tumor? Mucoepidermoid carcinoma. Okay. And the most common benign salivary, salivary gland tumor? Uh, pleomorphic adenoma. Uh, what's the treatment for a pleomorphic adenoma? Uh, a superficial parotidectomy. Yep. Superficial parotidectomy. Um, Don't so choose enucleate. Yeah, do not enucleate these. You do the full, I mean, a superficial parotidectomy um, is a pretty low um, risk, low morbid procedure. Um, so you do not enucleate these. Uh, and always be sure, whenever they ask you the most common something, be sure you check for that benign versus malignant because it's different. Um, uh, Woo, what's uh, gustatory sweating? Uh, that's called phrase syndrome. Okay. And when does this occur? So it, it occurs if you have an injury to the auriculotemporal nerve, and that then cross innervates with sympathetic fibers. Yeah, and so this is a this is can be uh, seen after a, a prodotectomy, and those you know nerve fibers are regrowing. So uh, Kevin, so there's there clinical scenario. So there's an elderly patient uh, who has a uh, post op fever, pain, uh, and a large swelling at the angle of the jaw. What is it? Yeah, I've actually seen this once, uh, a separative prototitis. Okay, and what's the most common organism with uh, this? Staph aureus. Okay, how do you treat it? So generally, these patients will get better just hydration and antibiotics. If there's a large, uh, obvious abscess, you can uh, drain that also. Yeah, so they'll give you this, you know, again, an elderly patient who's post-op, you know, from whatever, uh, a lap coli, and they're on the floor, or post-op from a colon resection, and they all of a sudden get very sick, high fevers, um, and they will give you a, a probably, you know, a benign otherwise clinical exam at the surgical site and you'll have a big swelling at the angle of the jaw. It's something you got to think about is a, a superative parotitis. Staph infection, most common. Again, antibiotics, first line treatment. But if there is an obvious abscess, uh, they may need an incision and drainage as with any abscess. Uh, oh, another favorite. So another head and neck favorite. So uh, patients post-op woo from a, a tracheostomy and you get some uh, bleeding at the tracheostomy side. So this is an alarm finding and you should be thinking tracheonominate fistula. Uh, in the board scenarios, you might want to distinguish whether they are describing a small amount, such as a herald bleed or a large amount. Uh, the reason that's important is because if it's just a small amount, you might consider uh, a role for bronchoscopy to rule out a tracheonominate fistula. But more than likely, it's going to be a massive hemoptysis. And in this case, the next step will be to place your finger into the tracheostomy, hold manual pressure against the sternum, and take the patient to the operating room emergently. Uh, the patient will then need a median sternotomy and resection of the innominate artery. And when you close, you're going to close the tracheal side primarily and cover with strap muscle. 
Most importantly, do not place a synthetic interposition graft. They will try and get you to choose this. Uh, This will get infected and blow out. And if you want to hear more about this, Dr. Doe does a fantastic oral board scenario of this um, in our thoracic oral boards. Yeah, they will. That's that's absolutely right. They will try and trick you. They will put that in. You know, you think it's a it's a major artery. You got to reconstruct it, but you don't. Um, so don't put any synthetic material in there. It'll absolutely get infected and it will blow out. Um, so yep, like Wu said, uh, put your finger there. You can also overinflate the cuff of the, the tracheostomy is is a good initial move. That might be an option on there, but ultimately OR median sternotomy and resect that abdominal artery. Um, you know, close it the hole in the trachea place some healthy tissue over that and uh and get out it's just that easy (laughs) all right well that does it for our first review that was head and neck it's not everybody's not every general surgeon's favorite topic but it's certainly necessarily and uh highly testable so uh, we'll see you next time on the behind the knife absat review until next time dominate the day 